Well, good morning, everyone. It is my uh, great pleasure to introduce our guest lecturer this year, Dr. Oliver Crisp. Uh, as you will detect from his accent right away, Dr. Crisp is a fellow Brit and uh, therefore appreciates all the benefits of being a Brit in the former colonies. Uh, as, uh, as, a, as a well-meaning student once told me, it must be great having a British accent because it makes you sound smarter than you really are. Um, well, that is true in my case, uh, but, but in Dr. O, uh, Dr. Crisp's case, I can assure you he really is as smart as he sounds. Uh, Dr. Crisp is currently a professor of systematic theology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Before relocating to the United States in uh, summer of 2011, he taught theology for six years at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. He has a Bachelor of Divinity in Church History and Systematic Theology from the University of Aberdeen, a Master's of Theology in Philosophical Theology, also from the University of Aberdeen, and a PhD in the Philosophy of Religion from the University of London King's College, where his doctoral supervisor was <coughs> Professor Paul Helm. Dr. Crisp is a remarkably prolific scholar, having authored no less than eight books since 2005 and has edited and contributed to many others. His own books include Jonathan Edwards and the Metaphysics of Sin, God Incarnate, Explorations in Christology, Retrieving Doctrine, Essays in Reformed Theology, Revisioning Christology, and his most recent publication, Deviant Calvinism, which I can assure you is not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> in addition, he has published upwards of 60 articles in scholarly journals and edited volumes. And as if that, all that were not enough, he's also an accomplished artist and has put his skills to good use by providing the cover artwork for several of his books. If I can be permitted just one personal story, my first encounter with Dr. Crisp took place at a postgraduate theology conference at the University of Aberdeen in 2003 while I was doing my own doctoral work at the University of Edinburgh. And I was at this conference, and I remember sitting in one of the paper sessions where a fellow student was presenting a paper on Karl Barth's Doctrine of God. When it came to the Q&A time, a tall English fellow at the back of the room posed a question to the presenter, and in the ensuing back and forth, he politely, but rather devastatingly, dismantled one of the central claims of the student's paper. I don't think the student quite knew what had hit him. Well, I would have enjoyed the spectacle a lot more if it weren't for the fact that I was next in line to present a paper. <laughs> but uh, the rest of the story you'll have to hear another time. Anyway, he is the one uh, presenting today, and uh, we very much look forward to hearing from him. So without further ado, please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Oliver Crisp. That is quite a welcome. Uh, thank you all for being here today. I, I should say I'm very grateful for the opportunity to come and speak to you on the doctrine of election. Um, my, talk, my talk today is really the first of two parts, and so uh, 
you'll see things appearing here that hopefully will be picked up in the in the session after lunch <clears throat> when we'll all be doing what they call Christian chin-ups, you know, when you've had too much lunch and you're <laughs> doing this. <clears throat> the doctrine of election, as it's been traditionally construed in Reformed theology, assumes that God is eternal. That is, God is timeless or atemporal, and for present purposes I'll use those two words interchangeably, rather than being sempiternal or everlasting in time. Divine atemporality is axiomatic for historic reform discussion of God and his external works because God ordains all that comes to pass logically prior to the creation of the world as part of his eternal counsels, as we see reflected in Ephesians 1, for example. In summing up the consensus of reform scholasticism on the topic, Heinrich Heppe puts it like this. Since then, the divine decree is the being and will of God himself. It is unconditioned by anything else and is absolute, eternal, and unchangeable. For that reason, it is also absolutely determinative of all that achieves reality, including its conditions. But how are the doctrines of divine election and eternity related to eschatology? A number of influential voices in contemporary systematic theology have answered as follows. God has a future, for God is in time. He is everlasting rather than timelessly eternal. On this way of thinking, the claim that God is timeless is thought to be the baptism of a pagan account of the divine life into Christian thought. For this reason, we're going to call it the Hellenization thesis about God's relation to time. So that's the first thing you have to hang, hang on to, the Hellenization thesis. What God ordains on this modern theological account is part of his own life as it unfolds in creation. For God is temporal and his, his life unfolds in time. Some are even willing to say that God must be who he is, having the particular history he does, which he ordains. This notion about God's relation to history, we shall call the Hegelian thesis. So that's the second thing you need to hang on to. What is more, according to some of these theologians, God's future in the eschaton somehow constitutes the divine identity, which is, I suggest, a dark saying indeed. <clears throat> but what could it mean to say that God's future constitutes his divine identity. Presumably the thought is that somehow God's future life instantiates something about who he is that would not otherwise be instantiated. But in some cases it seems to mean more than this, having to do with what the German theologian Wolfhard Pannenberg has called the ontological priority of the future. This we shall refer to as the eschatological identity thesis. So that's the third thing you need to hang on to. In this lecture, I want to explain and rebut these three modern theses about the divine life as a prelude to a more constructive second lecture. It's my contention that the traditional reform doctrine of eternal divine election has nothing to fear from them and is able to provide a better account of God's action and election in relation to the eschaton than the sort of revisionism to the doctrine of God and his external works proposed by the modern alternative expressed in the three theses I've just outlined. But this better account will have to wait until this afternoon when I shall be outlining it in more detail. So the argument of this lecture will fall into three parts. In the first, I'm going to give a dogmatic sketch of the doctrine of divine eternity, the main contours of which are probably fairly well known to you. Having given an outline of this aspect of the classical theistic picture, 
of the divine nature, we'll turn in a second section to consider the three theological theses about the divine nature in recent theology that I've just mentioned, each of which, in different ways, undermine the claim that God is eternal. Then in a third section, I shall offer some reflections on the findings of this analysis as a prelude to the constructive argument for a superlapsarian Christology. There's a little spoiler alert for you, which we'll be talking about this afternoon. So let's turn to divine eternity in the classical picture of the divine nature, the first section. According to the classical theistic picture, God is not a temporal being like us. He's an atemporal being. He exists without time. That is, no temporal relations bear upon the divine life. He has no beginning, middle, or end. He has no past, and he has no future. As the great Roman theologian Boethius put it, and I quote him, Eternity, then, is the complete, simultaneous, and perfect possession all at once of illimitable life. Therefore, whatever includes and possesses the whole fullness of a limitable life at once and is such that nothing future is absent from it and nothing past has flowed away, that is rightly judged to be eternal. And of this, it's necessary both that being in full possession of itself, it be always present to itself, and that it have the infinity of mobile time present to it. Now, this Boethian view is not merely one among several that are of equal dogmatic worth. It is, arguably, the default position in historic Christianity. It's also de fide for Roman Catholics, for God is said to be eternal according to Lateran IV and Vatican I, and appears to be enshrined in a number of Protestant symbols as well. For example, in the first article of the Anglican Articles of Religion, the first article of the Belgic Confession, first article of the Augsburg Confession, the first chapter of the Scots Confession, of course we had to have that in there, and last but not least, the second and third chapters of the Westminster Confession. I'm surprised there were no cheers when I said Westminster Confession, but you can't have it all. These symbols speak of God in terms reminiscent of the influential Boethian characterization as eternal. The alternative idea that God is somehow temporal or everlasting is a modern theological innovation and one without significant dogmatic support in the tradition. Even defenders of the everlastingness view concede as much. So, for example, William Hasker admits that the everlastingness view, and I quote him, has been a minority view in the history of theology with preference rather for the claim that God is timeless and outside of time altogether. Thus Hasker. For defenders of this classical view, the idea that God has a future makes no sense. He has no future, not because there's no future in believing in God, but because he's not in time. Nevertheless, God creates the world with time. He brings about the cosmos and everything in it, not at a particular moment prior to which he was doing something else. For, to repeat, it's an entailment of this view that there is nothing chronologically prior to the divine life because temporal relations have no purchase upon God. When asked, what was God doing before he created the world? Some have answered, making hell for those who pry into such things so that they ought to leave well alone. (coughs) St. Augustine has often said to have endorsed that view, but what he actually said was this. I would have preferred the answer, 
I am ignorant of what I do not know, rather than reply so as to ridicule someone who has asked a deep question and to win approval for an answer, which is a mistake. That's what Augustine says. For him, there is a sense in which the right response to this question ought to reflect a certain pious ignorance about what it means to claim that God is without time. We can't know what such a life is like. It is even difficult to give an account of such a life, for the conceptual apparatus we need to do so is, if not beyond us, at least at the very conceptual limits of what we're able to conceive and express in natural human languages. That said, the fact that we cannot give a complete account of a particular thing shouldn't lead us to presume that such a thing is therefore incoherent, as if the only things that can exist are the things that we can conceptually grasp, or at least are things humans should, in principle, be capable of conceptual grasping. There are many things in the world, independent of theology, that we cannot grasp, even things that we may be incapable of grasping in our current evolutionary state of development. Colin McGinn, a philosopher, and those who follow his so-called mysterianism about the philosophy of mind, claim that we may be incapable of figuring out the mind-body problem, for example, because we're not sufficiently evolved. It's not that the problem can't be resolved, only that given our current stage of evolutionary development, on McGinn's view, we don't have the hardware with which to successfully resolve the matter. In other words, we're too stupid. <clears throat> In theological circles, the idea that there may be things beyond our ken is hardly novel. Demarcating the difference between what we are in principle capable of knowing as creatures and what is beyond the ken of any human creature is not always easily done. But that doesn't mean there's no line to be drawn any more than the fact that a blind man cannot see a line in the sand means that there's no line in the sand to be seen. But perhaps there is a, a proper theological curiosity about the divine life, one that St. Augustine might approve. Suppose we approach the doctrine of God with a healthy dose of apophaticism. Apophaticism being the doctrine of saying what God is not rather than saying what he is. That is, suppose we begin our thinking about God by saying to ourselves, there will be aspects of the divine life that are beyond my ken. But there will be other things about the divine life that I can have some apprehension of because God has revealed these things to us in Scripture. Now, to my mind, that seems to reflect the sort of healthy apophaticism uh, that I want to endorse. Not that everything about the divine nature is forever beyond our ken, for then we could know nothing about God but rather that there are certain limited things we can know about God and certain things that we cannot, which we must let leave, you know, where we must leave the veil of mystery in place. Now, some will think that such a modest apophaticism with regard to the doctrine of God isn't strong enough. For, say such critics, we can know nothing about the divine life if by the divine life we mean the divine essence. We cannot know God as he is in himself. We can only know the emanations of God, or the energies of God, or some communication of the divine that is not identical to the divine essence. Perhaps, like the distinction in contemporary metaphysics between fundamental and derived properties, we can know certain things that are derived attributes of God, but not things that are fundamental to the divine essence. In a similar manner, perhaps we can know the derived properties of this table that appears hard to touch, that it resists my pressure upon it, that it's solid, wooden, of a certain height, width, depth, in three-dimensional space, and so on. <clears throat> Yet we cannot immediately apprehend certain fundamental properties of the table, 
such as the fact that it's composed mainly of a swirling cloud of particles arranged table-wise. Applied to God, the claim is that there are certain things about the divine nature that we can apprehend, things that God has communicated to us in Holy Writ, or perhaps in the created order, but such things are not fundamental to who he is, to his divine life. Instead, they are derivative, like the superficial attributes of the table with which we come into contact on a daily basis. This is an attractive picture of the divine life, and it, or something very like it, has had a grip on many historic Christian theologians. According to these thinkers, the divine nature is literally incomprehensible. That is, is such that we can't comprehend anything about it. As well as being ineffable, that is, such that we cannot express anything about it. Yet to my way of thinking, this is also a beguiling picture, and here's why. If Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate, then when Jesus speaks, God speaks. Or more precisely, when Jesus speaks, God incarnate speaks. That is, God the Son speaks by means of his human nature. In which case, when Jesus says something about God, it is God speaking about himself. Or more precisely, when Jesus says something about God, it is God the Son speaking by means of his human nature about his own divine nature. This seems to be an obvious correlate to the doctrine of the Incarnation as it's been classically understood. Now, I take it that Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate. He is a divine person modified by human nature, which he assumes at the first moment of incarnation and retains forevermore thereafter. So when Jesus says things like, I and the Father are one or agrees with Pilate's accusation that he is the son of God, or identifies himself with Adonai by saying, before Abraham was, I am, in John 8, he is making claims about himself and his relation to God. Or consider the claim of Jesus reported in Matthew's Gospel, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son will reveal him, from Matthew eleven twenty-seven. This tells us something about the divine nature that is surely fundamental. Namely, that the Father is only known by the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I take it that the referent of Son in this passage is the divine person speaking by means of his human nature. So we have two sorts of material here. The first includes sayings of Jesus that imply that he is divine or otherwise included in the divine life. The second includes sayings that report things about the divine nature by the Son, who, we are told has privileged access to the divine life. Given that scripture is the word of God, and that Jesus is God incarnate, I take it that we have good prima facie theological reasons for thinking that we can know things about God and about the divine life that count as being fundamental rather than derivative. In which case, claim of strong apophatesis that we can know nothing about the divine nature whatsoever must be mistaken. There are other reasons for thinking this is right, independent of specifically biblical arguments, of course. For one thing, if God is literally incomprehensible to us, then we can know precisely nothing about God. But that is plainly false, because we can know at least one thing about God, namely that we can know nothing about God. <laughs> Similarly, if divine ineffability is true, then we can express nothing about the divine nature. But plainly that is false, because we can express at least one thing about the divine nature, namely that we are incapable of expressing anything about the divine nature. 
But neither of these objections pertain to the modest version of apophaticism, which doesn't imply these strong notions about divine incomprehensibility or ineffability. Moreover, the modest version of apophaticism has the virtue of preserving the mystery of the divine nature, whilst at the same time giving reasons for thinking that we can know something about the divine nature, something that can be, can be actually expressed, given the incarnation, revelation in scripture, and so on. Now, suppose this modest apophaticism is on the right track. In and of itself, the claim that some of the canonical sayings of Christ reveal to us things about the divine nature does nothing to show that God's life is atemporal. That's not really that surprising, though. Scripture is, it seems to me, metaphysically underdetermined on a number of important matters, and this includes the question of whether God's life is temporal or atemporal. Does anything Christ is reported to have said suggest that God is atemporal? Perhaps. When Jesus is reported as saying in John 8.58, before Abraham was, I am, this, I take it, is clearly a claim to divinity, it might also suggest something about what the divine life is like. Jesus is not reported as saying before Abraham was, I was, or even before Abraham was, I will be what I will be. He's reported as saying that before Abraham was, I am, ego eimi. The fact that this saying comes in a passage often thought to be an addition to the fourth gospel or an interpolation doesn't really affect the point being made here. For suppose it is an interpolation or later scribal gloss, the work of some editor that postdates the work of the original Johannine community, it's still the case that the canonical form of the text as received by the church includes this passage, and the Christians down through the ages have believed that it reflects something important about Christ's claims regarding himself on the basis of this canonical form of the text. As for what he claims here, it's not only startling, it suggests, and I put it no stronger than that, that the sort of divine life in which Jesus includes himself, is one that is not temporal in any conventional sense. Now, more would need to be said about this matter if our primary concern was to expound the account of the divine life given by Christ in the canonical Gospels, but that is not our task. Nevertheless, there is at least some evidence that suggests Jesus' sayings are consistent with the claim that God is atemporal, and that may even suggest this, evidence of the sort just adduced. But my broader claim is a modest one, namely that scripture is underdetermined on this question, though it's consistent with the notion that God is atemporal, a view that can claim to be the default option in historic Christianity, even if it is currently out of favour. If God is atemporal, as Boethius claims, then our conception of the doctrine of election must be framed accordingly. For then God ordains all that comes to pass in an eternal moment, as it were. He does not ordain what he does successively or chronologically, for that presumes that some temporal relations pertain to the divine life. This is the point to which I'll return at the end of the lecture. So that's what I want to say by way of sketching out the eternalist position. Let's, look at, let's turn to look at those three theses that I um, introduced at the beginning of my talk. Beginning with the Hellenization thesis. The eternalist position of God has been the subject of sustained criticism in modern theology and indeed philosophy. The British theologian Colin Gunton speaks for many when he writes this. It is one of the tragedies, one could almost say crimes, of Christian theological history that the Old Testament was effectively displaced by Greek philosophy as the theological basis of the doctrine of God 
certainly so far as the divine attributes are concerned. Gunton's view has been trumpeted in recent systematic theology by his teacher and mentor, the Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen. He's well known for his assertion that philosophy is just a secularized theology, the theology of the ancient world, or what he refers to as the Olympian Parmenidian religion. There is no such thing as philosophy on his way of thinking, or more precisely, there is something called philosophy, but it's not a discipline distinct from theology. It's just a, a rival sort of theology, one that originates in the Hellenistic world and its religions. Once we see this, says Jensen, our desire to conform our theology to its dictates, as if philosophy was somehow capable of providing an independent objective standard of rationality, to which all other disciplines must pay lip service, should evaporate. For on his way of thinking, we shall then see that philosophy really is a rival theology. What is more, we shall see that the attempt to construct theology using philosophical tools is tantamount to borrowing ideas and sensibilities from a rival religious tradition. Rather than radical orthodoxy's penchant for out-narrating secular approaches to religion, he, as it were, takes a leaf out of Karl Rahner's book and regards philosophers as anonymous theologians. Jensen's vision of a properly theological theology, rescued from the secularized theological discourse of philosophy, is appealing because it provides a plausible explanation of why it is that theologians so often feel the need to apply to the ideas of the philosophers in order to furnish their thought with a certain intellectual credibility or with certain notions, concepts, and arguments. But for this very reason, it's also mistaken. To equate philosophy per se with a deracinated ancient theology is like saying modern scientific cosmology is just secularized astrology. Astrologers might find this appealing, for it's certainly true that there is some conceptual overlap between these two disciplines. But few outside the guild of astrologers will think that it is the same sort of discipline as cosmology, or that cosmology is a secularized astrology. The same is true, I suggest, the relevant changes being made with respect to the difference between theology and philosophy. A number of other recent theologians and philosophers echo the sentiment expressed by Gunton and Jensen, notably Jürgen Moltmann and Wolfgang Pannenberg amongst German-speaking theologians, and Richard Swinburne and Nicholas Waldstorff amongst uh, Anglo-American philosophers. But its most famous defender is the liberal historian of dogma, Adolf von Harnack, who declared this, the development of the Christian faith into an all-embracing theosophy and the identification of faith with theological knowledge are proofs that the Christian religion on Greek soil entered the prescribed circle of the native religious philosophy and has remained there. Divine eternity is a test case for the Hellenization thesis because, so it is claimed, it is the Greek fixation with finding some perfect, immutable, and non-temporal truth not subject to the ravages of time and change that led early Christian thinkers to posit timelessness as the only adequate conception of the divine nature. But as we've already seen in sketching out the eternity view, this characterization of divine atemporality is, to say the least, contentious. It trades upon the assumption, for an assumption it is, that the biblical God must be in time because various relations and predicates are ascribed to him that imply he is temporal. He changes his mind, he repents, he deliberates, he acts in different ways at different times, and so on. 
Two things can be said about such claims. The first and most fundamental is that this way of reading the biblical material is not metaphysics-free. It presumes that a certain view of the material, namely that the view according to which God is everlasting and not timeless, is the right way to read the text because it is the most straightforward, common sense, or obvious way to read the texts. But this is by no means incontestable if it transpires that there are good reasons for reading the texts differently. By analogy, it might be common sense to think that the sun revolves around the earth, for it rises in the east each day and sets in the west. We don't move. It moves across the heavens. Yet we know that this initially plausible view is in fact mistaken. Heliocentrism, not geocentrism, is the truth of the matter. The second thing to be said about such an approach to scripture is that it makes certain tacit hermeneutical assumptions about how to treat texts which tell us that God repents, deliberates, and otherwise apparently changes over time. These assumptions include presuming that such material should be treated straightforwardly as predicating these actions of God. But this is not at all obvious, and it was not obvious to pre-critical readers of Scripture. Certainly God is said to repent, deliberate, and so on, that's undeniable. But whether we should ascribe such predicates unequivocally to God is another matter. We don't commonly think God has an arm, though Isaiah says he does, or an eye, though he said, he's said to in 2 Chronicles 16, or is spatially located, though the psalmist tells us he is in Psalm 47, as Isaiah says he is in Isaiah 6. So scripture says all these things about God. Why do we think this latter class of ascriptions are anthropomorphic in nature, whereas the former class are not? Where do we draw the line between passages that ascribe predicates to God that should be understood in terms of anthropomorphism, in other words, us projecting something onto God, and those that should not? At the very least, it's not obvious from a plain reading of the text of Scripture which are which or where the line should be drawn. These are decisions we make as readers of the texts, but they are hermeneutical decisions nonetheless. As Paul Helm observes, and I quote him, if there is no evidence of either the acceptance or rejection of the abstract idea of timelessness, then what this allows one to infer is not that the biblical writers rejected the idea of timeless eternity, but that they neither accepted it or rejected it, and that the idea of timeless eternity may be consistent with what they did accept. Like Helm, it seems to me that the biblical case for the Hellenization thesis is, as Scott's criminal law says, not proven. <clears throat> Alongside this Hellenization thesis is a second modern theological concern that runs counter to the traditional doctrine of God and therefore to the traditional notion of divine eternity, what I am going to call the Hegelian thesis. I've already introduced it. The idea to remind you is this. In some manner, God's life unfolds in history. The particular way in which this, this, this thesis is stated differs from one theologian to another, but they share in common the idea that because God is in time, his life unfolds in history. Let me consider the contribution of two recent American theologians to this discussion, the ecumenical Lutheran Jensen, who we've already talked about, and Bruce McCormack, who's a Presbyterian. We'll see that both, in important respects, work from Karl Barth's mature theology of election, encapsulated in his Church Dogmatics 2.2, using his contribution as a point of departure for their own constructive projects. Jensen holds that God's life is embedded within the history of Israel. In the first volume of his systematic theology, he says that the Son is, quote, his own presupposition in God's eternity, close quote. 
He appears in the Old Testament not as unincarnate, but as, to quote him, the narrative pattern of Israel's created human story, before he may appear as a particular Israelite in that story. He goes on to say this, What in eternity precedes the son's birth to Mary is not an unincarnate state of the son, but a pattern of movement within the event of the incarnation, the movement to incarnation as itself a pattern of God's triune life. Close quote. A little wordy. More recently, whilst conceding that his earlier claim about Christ's pre-existence is a, as a pattern of movement in the life of Israel was, this is his phrase, hopelessly vague, he offers the following clarification of his position. Another quote from him. What in the triune life as ontological precedence to the son as subsistent relation is the monarchy of the father. His relation to Jesus is the condition of the possibility of Jesus' relation to him. Yet the Father himself does not subsist otherwise than as a relation to the Son. The circle is the very point. Therefore, since there is no way in which anything could be precedent to the Father, there is nothing precedent to the Son as a subsistent relation. Close quote. That is, there can be no sense to talk about Christ's pre-existence if the second person of the Trinity just is the subsistent relation within the Godhead that is identical to the history that we see in Christ. Or... To attempt to put it less gnomically, if Christ is identical to the second person of the Trinity, then, says Jensen, there's no life of the second person independent of Christ. No residue or overflow that is not accounted for when we refer to Christ. Now, in one respect, this is a bold, courageous move that in one fell swoop attempts to shore up the identification of Christ with God while denying any room to speculation about the life of the second person of the Trinity before his incarnate state. But like all substantive theological claims, this way of construing the Hegelian thesis comes at a price. First, it requires us to swallow the claim that Christ is identical to God the Son. In fact, it would appear that he is necessarily identical to the Son so that there is no possible world, possible set of circumstances, where God the Son exists apart from Christ. Second, and as a corollary to this, it requires us to say that there's no meaning to language about Christ pre-existing his incarnate state. For many Christian theologians sympathetic to a classical Chalcedonian Christology, this will not be a price they are willing to pay. But perhaps the most important recent attempt to articulate a version of what I'm calling the Hegelian thesis is that given by, the, uh, by those who followed Bruce McCormack's interpretation of Bart. Robert Jensen puts Bart's mature position uh, in Church Dogmatics 2.2 like this, to quote him. According to Bart, God's being is most decisively construed by the notion of decision. God is so unmitigatedly personal that his free decision is not limited even by his divine nature. What he is, he himself chooses. But that must be to say God is the act of his decision. Thus, the doctrine of the election of God's choice before all time, is for Bart the centre of the doctrine of God's being. Jensen goes on to add that what is chosen according to Bart is the union of God in the person of Christ with humankind. He says this, But since God is his act of choice, God in making this actual choice not only chooses that he will be the man Jesus, as the event of choice, he is the man Jesus, close quote. McCormack has taken this as a point of departure for a Bart-inspired constructive theological program, which is still being worked out. He's still working on it now. He's got several large monographs uh, 
that are being uh, worked on as we speak. Part of this debate has to do with how Bart should rightly be interpreted. Though that's also an important theological matter, especially for those who reformed, that's not our primary concern. Our concern is with how McCormack uses Bart in his own work. Now suppose we think of God's act in creation as an expression of his freedom and aseity. He is free to create and refrain from creating. He is also independent of the creation, both psychologically and metaphysically. That's what aseity is, and it's a matter to, to which we'll return in the next lecture. According to McCormack, God's eternal decision to elect to be God for us in Christ is not merely what the scholastics would have called a hypothetical necessity. That is, it's not merely the case that God freely ordains to create a world in which Christ is the mediator of human salvation, after which it's necessarily the case that that's what's going to happen. In choosing to be God for us in Christ, the God who saves us by electing and reprobating himself, God constitutes himself who he is. Is the Barton claim. That constitution is something that, according to this version of the Galian thesis, obtains in history. In other words, it's because God elects Christ, who is who he is because of a particular historic union, uh, sorry, particular historic action in his incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, because of that, that God is constituted as God for us in Christ. So not only is God's life something that unfolds in the history of Christ's life, on this way of thinking, the divine life is made the particular life of Father, Son, and Spirit because God ordains that he will be the God for us in Christ. As we've already had cause to note, this is related to the recent debate about the so-called uh, pre-existence of Christ and the so-called logos asarkos, in other words, uh, God without flesh. Both Jensen and McCormack maintain that there's no meaning to the claim that Christ exists without flesh, although they give slightly different reasons for why that's the case. For McCormack, there's no son of God without flesh, and to posit a life of God, the son, before or logically prior to his life in the flesh, is to posit a God behind God, as if there is a God revealed to us in Christ in the economy of salvation, and a God behind this economic de deity, one whose actions are mysterious, but who, it seems, ordains to be the particular God we know in and through Christ once he decides to create the world that he does almost as if you've got some figure behind a mask and you can only see the mask, you can't see behind to the, to the figure who's hiding behind it. Reaching back behind this economic trinity, that is, God as he's revealed to us in the economy of creation and salvation, to a putative ontological trinity, that is, God in himself, abstracted, as it were, from any economic function in creation and salvation, is not merely useless speculation on this way of thinking. It's a theological dead end. To make Jesus Christ a subject of election, if carried out consistently, says McCormack, conceding that Bart is not always consistent in this respect, is, he says, to bid farewell to the distinction between the eternal word and the incarnate word. An eternal word would be no more than a metaphysical abstraction, he says, with no reality attached to it. Is such metaphysical abstraction inappropriate? In the way similar to the action of trying to say, look at a man behind, hide, look at the man hiding behind the curtain, working the levers that generate the illusion of wizardry that is Oz, the great and powerful, as in Frank L. Baum's *The Wizard of Oz*, American fairy tale. Not exactly. It's inappropriate in the sense that to posit a god behind God, as he reveal, as he's revealed to us economically, is to look for someone behind the curtain, 
when there is no one there to be found. There is no God behind God on this way of thinking. If we don't see this, we won't understand just how revolutionary this version of the Hegelian thesis is. It's tantamount to claiming that God constitutes himself as he is in the action of electing to be God for us in Christ. By choosing to be this God rather than some other, he ties his identity, as it were, to the history of salvation that that unfolds in the life and ministry of God incarnate. So McCormack says this, God is in himself in eternity the mode of his self-revelation in time. God as Jesus Christ in eternity and God as Jesus Christ in time, thus guaranteeing that the imminent trinity and the economic trinity will be identical in content. That's what he says. In addressing the Hegelian thesis, we have briefly considered two different attempts to tether God's life to history. Both of these are really species of Bart-inspired theology. In his fine study of Robert Jensen's thought, Scott Squain, known of course to the community here, observes as follows, The story of Trinitarian theology after Bart is therefore not only the story of debates about how to interpret Bart's claim that Jesus is the electing God, it's also the story of debates about whether and to what extent Bart's historicizing agenda and its concomitant metaphysical revisionism requires affirmation and extension. Now that's what, what Scott says there, seems to me to be spot on. There's much that is appealing about such revisionism. Placing Christ at the centre of the doctrine of election as the subject of election is, in many ways, Bart's greatest contribution to Christian theology and one that Jensen and McCormack have capitalised upon in rather different ways. But suppose that instead of worrying about avoiding the bifurcation between the economic and the imminent trinity by means of a historicised and Christologically focused account of election, instead of that, suppose we thought of the economic trinity as somehow contained within the imminent trinity. That is, suppose we think of the relationship between the economic and imminent life of God rather like we think of our own lives. We have economic functions, how we appear to those around us with whom we interact on a daily basis. Yet these are but one aspect of who we are. We don't think that because we have a rich internal life that is necessarily private and incommunicable to those around us, there is some worrying bifurcation between our imminent selves and our economic selves. Instead, we think that there's an aspect of our lives that is public-facing and accessible to the world around us, and another that is not and cannot be made accessible by definition, though it may be communicated piecemeal through conversation and dialogue. Transpose that onto the picture of, of God as timeless. His imminent life is eternal and atemporal. It has a richness and depth that are incommunicable to his creatures by definition. Yet he graciously communicates something of himself and his purposes to us in Revelation and supremely in Christ. Is the notion that there is a distinction between the economic and imminent trinity on this way of thinking tantamount to the bifurcation of God into two distinct entities? Not at all. Just as there is a distinction between creaturely economic and imminent functions, so there is a similar distinction that can be ascribed to God. How could there not be if we want to preserve the freedom and aseity of the deity? We come to our third modern theological concern that pushes against the traditional doctrine of God and therefore against divine eternity, the eschatological identity thesis, you'll recall. It's not unusual to find theologians agreeing that in the eschaton God will be all in all so that his purposes are fully and finally revealed to all of creation. I take it that such language bespeaks an epistemological claim about the eschatological revelation of God's purposes, something we can know. 
In other words, in the eschaton, all of humanity will finally know or perceive the purposes of God in creation. However, several recent theologians take a much stronger claim about the relation between God's purposes in creation and the eschaton. They claim that God's purposes are only actualized in the eschaton, prior to which God's work is merely anticipatory. Some even go as far as to say that something about the divine nature is only instantiated in the eschaton and not before. The difference here is rather like that between coming to understand that your friend is in fact the son of a famous author, something that did actually happen to me, and the change that takes place when your friend gets married. The first example involves a merely epistemic change. You come into possession of a certain piece of information about your friend that was previously unknown to you. Yet nothing has changed with respect to your friend. In the second example, the change is not merely epistemic. A legal change in status is involved as well, becoming married. Something really has changed then in respect to your friend. Whereas most Christian theologians have been willing to allow that the eschaton brings about a merely epistemic change so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, as Philippians 2 tells us, few have thought that the change that the eschaton ushers in alters the status of God himself. Yet that is what defenders of the eschatological identity thesis maintain. Let's return to Jensen's work once more. In the first volume of his systematic theology he writes this, the biblical God is not eternally in him, is not is it not eternally himself in that he presently persistently rather instantiates a beginning in which he already is all he ever will be he is eternally himself in that he unrestrictedly anticipates an end in which he will be all that he ever could be he goes on to say this it also holds or rather primarily with God a story is constituted by the outcome of the narrated events. Later in discussing Christology, he goes even further and says this, God's eternity is the infinity of life, for what obtains in life always comes from the future. The difference between God and us is that he as the spirit is his own future and so is unboundedly lively. And again he says, God is temporally infinite because source and goal are present and asymmetrical in him because he is primarily future to himself and only thereupon past and present for himself. Now, Jensen likes to write with such flourishes. At different times he says that God is an event, a fugue, and here a narrative, a life that comes from the future, and so on. I'm not sure what the function of such tropes are supposed to be in his work at times, because it's not, just, it's not always clear uh, from the context whether they're being used metaphorically or realistically, or even in some kind of critical realist way as a conceptual picture or window onto some reality no one concept can hope to adequately express. In any event, from this catena of passages, it certainly looks like Jensen thinks that something about the divine nature is constituted by the outcome of salvation history. That appears to be an ontological, not merely an epistemic or proleptic claim about the divine life. Here, there is a difference between Jensen and McCormack. For McCormack's proposal is about how making Christ a subject of election has implications for protology, for what God does in election, rather than eschatology, what God brings about the end. By contrast, Jensen seems to think that the history of God, and of Christ in particular, tells us something about the future of God. This brings me to my third section impartial defense of the classical picture before we move on after lunch. 
At the outset of his programmatic account of social Trinitarianism, the German Reformed theologian Jürgen Moltmann says that although a modern understanding of the Trinity must take account of the voices of the tradition, a return to the earlier Trinity of substance is practically impossible, if only because the return to the cosmology of the old way of thinking about being has become impossible too, ever since modern times. That's a quote. This, I think, is symptomatic of the sort of worries with the classical doctrine of God and of divine eternity and the doctrine of election in particular that we have examined thus far. The old way of conceiving the divine nature must be supplanted by a modern one, influenced by Barth's program and taken in a historicized direction, in the case of Jensen, with the ontological priority of the future in mind. But why must we make such radical revisions to our doctrine of God and of election? Might it be that we, have, that we can have our proverbial cake and eat it as well? That is, can we retain a traditional account of the divine nature, including that God is eternal, and yet have a doctrine of election that is profoundly shaped by Christological concerns, the concerns that Bart, I think, rightly drew our attention to? I think we can. And in the next lecture, I shall offer one such account. Thank you. Let's pray. Let us still our hearts and minds. We come into the presence of a holy and glorious God. Lord God, as we come before you, as we think about these deep and profound and sometimes arcane things. Help us, we ask, to be mindful of our finitude and smallness in comparison with the greatness and glory that is who you are. Help us to be like the prophet Isaiah, who, when confronted with a vision of you in the temple, in all your glory, said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I have beheld the glory of the Lord, and I am, am undone. And may it be, O Lord, that as the angel brought the burning coal to sear his lips and take away his sin, that Christ, the Lamb of God, may be the one who takes away our sin, that we may Know what it is to be united to Christ and united to you and to participate in your divine life, that we might know what it is to be in fellowship with you. Help us, Lord, to, in all our theologizing, remember the, the call that you have placed upon us to seek to glorify your name and to spread your gospel throughout the world until you come again. In Christ's name, amen.